Um, and so it was a really great trip, um, but I did miss a few things while I was gone. I missed the end of the NBA Finals. So uh, I know sacrifices you make for Jesus. <laughs> but uh, if you're following the NBA Finals, you, you might have known, you know, all right, so, so they play a best of seven series between these two NBA teams. So the first of four wins, um, wins the series. And uh, not as a surprise to most people who are paying attention, the Golden State Warriors won four games and it was over. Now, yeah, some of you are excited, some of you don't care. Now, now just as a quick question, so it's a seven-game series, but once Golden State won four games, do you think they decided to still play the last three games? No, that's not what they do. That would seem silly to us to do, because even if the Cavs won the last three games, Golden State would still win. Once you get to that point of requirement, once you get the four games, you just stop playing games. And that to me, it's not weird that they would do that in basketball, but it did strike me to say that feels like a little bit of a microcosm of how most of us approach life. That we approach life saying, all right, what is required of me? What is the minimum required of me? And once I have accomplished that, I'm just going to stop and not give anything extra. I mean, I'm very doubtful that for most of you, a couple months ago, when you got the information about how much you needed to pay in taxes, that any of you said, that just doesn't look like enough. <laughs> I doubt that any of you, when you bargain for a car, bargain up the price. That this isn't what we do. We look at situations and we say, all right, wait, what is the least amount that I can do and still be okay as a good person or still be fulfilling my legal requirements? I mean, we, we might say like the one area that we don't do this is with tipping. You might say, no, I tip and I don't need to tip. Like I, I tip, so that's good. I go over and above. But some of you have those calculators and you're like, how much do I technically have to tip so that they don't like spit in my water next time I'm here? We, we just, we, we by nature, I think this is something that we do. We, we just say, all right, I want to figure out what I have to do and I'll fulfill what I have to do. And after that, I'll just choose what I do with my money, with my time, with my resources, with, with my attitude. I'll do the minimum and I won't move beyond that. And one of the powerful things that we encounter in, in this series, where we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out what life is like if he is ruling as the king in our lives and, and in our church and in our community. If Jesus is ruling as king, he calls us to something beyond the idea of just saying, I'm going to do what I have to do and nothing more. And where we're going to get to walk through today is the idea that for King Jesus, Love, which is the center of his kingdom, the center of the idea that he's communicating to us. Love calls us not to minimize our responsibilities, but to minimize our demands. It changes us from people that ask, what do I have to do? To people who say, I am going to downplay what others owe me. And I'm going to look to go over and beyond what I owe them. And not just financially, but in relationship and in attitude and in prayer. Today, we're going to finish up Matthew 5. The, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's five, six, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to finish up chapter 5, and we're finishing up the section where six different times Jesus starts a sentence, start, starts a passage by saying, you've heard it said, and then quotes the Old Testament, and then follows that up by saying, but I tell you. He does this six times. We're going to walk through the last two times that he does it. And when Jesus does this, what he's not saying is, that was the Old Testament. The Old Testament was bad. We're moving on to something different. 
What he's saying is, I'm going to start with the letter of the law. I'm going to start with the hard line requirement. And then I'm going to call you to something that's deeper than that. I'm going to call you to something that comes from the heart. I'm going to call you not just to external behavior, but to an internal transformation. And he's going to talk about it specifically in this whole area of how love calls us to go beyond our responsibilities. And and in two different ways in this section, he's going to call us to how love goes beyond the things that are required of us. And I'll put the first one up here on the screen and then we'll walk through the verses. But the first thing that Jesus is going to say is that love goes beyond the responsibilities of justice. In other words, love doesn't just stop with saying, what do I owe you and what do you owe me, but goes beyond justice to mercy. So here's how he begins in verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, many of you have probably heard this quoted before, whether or not you knew it was in the Bible. This shows up at several different times in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And to us, at least initially, it sounds really, really harsh. We think, oh, like this is just the the exact retribution idea. But I want to say it's actually not as harsh as it may initially sound. In fact, I want to read to you from John Stott's commentary. He talks about this whole idea that, that this is the idea of the lex talionis, which is the idea of the the law of retribution. So he says, it expressed the lex talionis, the principle of an exact retribution whose purpose was both to lay the foundation of justice, specifying the punishment which a wrongdoer deserved, and to limit the compensation of his victim to an exact equivalent and no more. It thus had the double effect of defining justice and restraining revenge. It also prohibited the taking of the law into one's own hands by the ghastly vengeance of the family feud. And so the idea here, what John Stott is getting at, is the idea that we could look at that and say, oh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's really, really harsh. And in some ways, yeah, that is harsh. But in other ways, what it's saying is you don't get to go eye for two eyes and tooth for two tooths. You don't get to up the ante. You don't get to escalate. If you're going to receive some kind of uh, recompense for a wrong that you suffered, if you're going to receive something from the person who wronged you, you don't get to up the ante. You only get to get what what you were wronged for. Um, And in fact, by Jesus' time, and really even mostly in Moses' time, they wouldn't literally exchange eye for eye and tooth for tooth there would be some kind of monetary payment to say, all right, this is how much work this man is going to lose, or this is, excuse me, how much the medical cost will be because of what happened to him. So you're going to have to pay that amount. So it was the idea that the payment doesn't up the ante. And even if you just stopped here, Jesus isn't critiquing this idea, saying this is actually a pretty good idea to say the payment, the penalty should fit the crime. You shouldn't be upping the ante because most of us do have the instinct when we're wronged to up the ante. I mean, let me just ask you a quick question. When somebody insults you, and whether it's, especially in front of other people, if somebody insults you, and maybe it's on social media, maybe it's just in a group of people, they insult you in a way that other people hear it. And let's just say, ranking on a scale of one to 10, that their insult was at a two. It wasn't super, super bad, but, but it was frustrating to you. If they insult you as a two, what do you tend to want to strike back at? All right, we have a variety of very honest answers. Some, somebody's like five because they feel like that's the right answer. And others of you were like eight, 10. You just, you, you just go right. Is there an 11 on this scale? 
You just write up, I'm going to end this right now. I didn't start this fight, but I'm going to end this fight as soon as possible. The, the point is, we tend to want to escalate. Oh, okay, you, you hit me at a two, I'm going to hit you at a five. You know, you did this to me, I'm going to strike back at a higher level. Jesus is saying, all right, just baseline. The baseline idea from the Old Testament passed down was you don't get to up the ante. If somebody wronged you, they do owe you in some way and they should pay that up, but you don't get to escalate things. Even that is a high calling for all of us. But Jesus says, I'm going to call you to something higher than just saying, what am I owed? I'm going to collect. Verse 39, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, before we go in, Jesus then gives four examples. We'll walk through how the four examples explain this idea. But but that seems like a really strange thing for Jesus to say. Do not resist an evil person. Isn't that what godly people do, that they resist and speak out against evil and evil people? Isn't that what all the heroes of the Bible do? Isn't that what Moses did when he went to Pharaoh and told them to let the people go? Isn't this what the different prophets did when they spoke up against corrupt kings? Isn't this what the heroes that we celebrate in in history did when they stood up to evil people? Jesus here isn't saying, if there's a person doing evil, don't try to stop them. He's talking very specifically in this context, and you'll see through the examples, he's basically saying, when he says don't resist an evil person, he's saying two things. The first thing that he's saying is don't retaliate. If you're wronged, your calling is not to escalate things by retaliating or even to try to get what you believe is owed you. Don't retaliate, number one. And number two, don't demand your rights. If something is owed you, your instinct shouldn't be to collect. Your instinct should be to show mercy. And so he gives these four quick examples. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also, which is where where the famous saying, turn the other cheek comes from. And this is in the context less of physical violence, of more of an insult in public, that there would be some kind of disgrace in public where somebody would slap somebody else on the face. And the idea here is that Jesus is saying, instead of escalating, instead of the instinct, which would be to do what? You're going to slap them right back. He says, not only that, but go ahead and turn the other cheek. Go ahead and allow the wrong to continue instead of taking retaliation or claiming what's yours. He goes on with a couple of these other examples. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And now here's why this is ironic. Because in Jewish law, people were allowed to sue each other if they felt like they had a a legitimate claim. But the one thing that they were not allowed to collect from the other person was their coat because that could be how they stay warm at night. So you could take them for all that they're worth, but not their coat. So Jesus says, if somebody sues you and takes you for all that you're worth, be willing to go beyond that in your generosity towards them. And he echoes this in what he says in verse 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And the idea here is that Israel was an occupied nation. Rome was in charge of Israel's land at this time. And so at any time, a Roman soldier could go up to a Jewish citizen and say, carry my equipment for one mile. And a mile was the the furthest distance they were able to require a Jewish citizen to go with them. And Jesus says, not only do I want you not to complain or not to refuse, go the one mile and then offer to go another mile, which they weren't allowed to require you to do. And finally, verse 42 seems to be kind of the the bigger summary or the financial summary. He says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And the idea here is that if somebody asks you for money, by definition, that means you don't owe them the money. 
They're asking for mercy. They're asking for a gift. You don't have to give them the gift. But Jesus says, go ahead and give them the gift. If they ask you, give to them. If they need to borrow from you, go ahead and give to them. Four different times, Jesus reiterates the idea saying, when you're wronged by somebody else, your job is not to retaliate. It's not to escalate. And if you are owed something in some way, your primary job is not to collect. You're not out to demand your rights. Even if it would be just, you're not out to demand your rights. You are out to give mercy. You're out to show the world something different than, the, than what they're experiencing from everyone else. This is the common thread. And, and we see this in lots of ways. I mean, just think about this. Even in our own country, when we think of kind of the foundation, the, the First Amendment for the United States is the freedom of, yeah, freedom of speech that we typically talk about as the freedom of speech. Um, so freedom of speech doesn't mean that you get to say whatever you want and not have any consequences. It means you get to say whatever you want and the government doesn't shut you down. So for example, if I got up here and started talking about how I wasn't quite sure about Jesus and maybe he isn't really the son of God, um, the elders would fire me and they would be right to do this. And that would not be a violation of my freedom of speech because I wouldn't be thrown in jail. So it just means, all right, so I'm not going to be thrown in jail. The government can't shut me down no matter what I say. Now, that is not a license for saying anything that you want to say. Although somebody could say, well, well, yeah, it is. You just said the government can't throw me in prison. But most of us know just because you can say something doesn't mean you Good job, you passed the test. <laughs> doesn't mean that you should say it. And we recognize, all right, that's just a reality. I have a claim. I have a legal claim to say I get to say whatever I want. But most of us would recognize that doesn't mean it's good to say whatever I want. And in a much more all-encompassing way, Jesus is saying, this is how you live your life. You don't live your life saying, I have a right to this. That's not the deciding factor. Although that is often the deciding factor for us in our culture. We, we are the most litigious society in the history of humanity. We sue everybody. And if you go to a lawyer and you kind of lay out who you want to sue and all the evidence, they might say this to you. They might say, I believe you have a case. And for most of us, if we were to hear those words from a lawyer, I believe you have a case, what would be our next words? Yep, let's do it. Let's get a move. If I have a case, clearly then I should take the opportunity to try to get what I'm owed and to get the maximum amount of what I'm owed. What Jesus is saying is, no, that's not the deciding factor. Having a case doesn't mean you take the case. Having the right to strike back at somebody doesn't mean you strike back at somebody. Having the right to collect on a loan doesn't mean you collect on the loan. And Gary even talked about this a little bit last week when he was tackling the subject of divorce. Talked about the whole idea of, all right, it, scripturally, there are different times where divorce is allowed, where divorce is permitted. But the idea is not, well, I've got permission and I'm going for it. The idea is just because you have permission doesn't mean that that's what God is calling you to do. The norm in our culture is to say, what am I owed? And Jesus says, but not citizens of my kingdom. And just pause and think for a minute about how different things would have been if Jesus would have interacted in this world by saying, what am I owed? Jesus is the son of God. 
Jesus is owed all attention, all worship, all affection, and anybody who doesn't give it to him, anybody who crosses him, he would be absolutely in his rights to squash them. Jesus went to the cross, and he says this in John 10. It's so powerful because people even debate, you know, who, who was really the, the main force behind Jesus dying? Um, was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Jesus, I think, brings us a little bit of help on this in John 10. Because in John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Not the Jews, not the Romans. No one takes my life from me. I freely give it on my own accord. Jesus didn't live his life demanding his rights, and thank God he didn't, because we would have never been welcomed into the family of God if Jesus lived this way. Jesus says, I'm going to call you to do something hard. I'm going to call you, don't just de-escalate, but choose not to collect at times where you could collect and could be well within your rights. Now, now Jesus is going to take this even further. The, the two sections we'll go through are connected, but Jesus is going to take this even a little bit further because some of us might think, all right, there, there are people out there that you just need to do this with, and there are other people that you don't do this with. So, you know, you don't tear apart a family because of suing them or because of collecting different things, but there are other people out there that you just need to sort of collect with. You, you need to hold their feet to the fire. And Jesus is going to say, not only does love go on beyond the responsibility of justice, but love goes beyond the responsibilities of inclusion. In other words, for all of us, there are certain people that we feel obligations towards. And Jesus is going to say, I'm about to make that net much wider. So here's what he says in verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is weird, so let's talk about this. Um, how many of you knew love your neighbor was a command in the Old Testament? All right. Yeah, it, it's in there. It's in there a couple times. How many of you knew hate your enemy was a command in the Old Testament? Yeah, this is weird. This is something where Jesus appears to be adding something on. Lots of commands in the Old Testament about love your neighbor. No command in the Old Testament that says, hate your enemy. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he, is he adding something on? Is, is he tacking on some Jewish religious leader teaching here? Here's what seems to be happening in this passage. Jesus seems to be making a summary statement. He's not referring to one specific passage. He's referring to a general idea that the Jews could have picked up from the Old Testament that says, all right, our obligation is to our own people. We're brothers and sisters. Those of us who are Jews are brothers and sisters. Our obligation is to our own people. We have no obligation to those outside of our people. And you might think, yeah, but he says hate. And, and this is part of the problem that we, that we get to when, when we deal with um, kind of the, the fact that there's a culture gap and a language gap when we get our Bibles. Because we hear hate and we think, well, he's talking about active hostility and active feelings of indignation. But that's not often what hate meant when you see it used in the Gospels. In fact, there's something that Jesus is going to say when we get to chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say, you can't serve two masters. And the reason you can't serve two masters is because you'll love the one and you'll hate the other. For years, I thought that was one of the strangest things that Jesus said. He said, no, you don't. You don't have to hate one. If you have two competing masters, you don't have to say, I love one and I hate the other. You could just say, I choose one and I reject the other. And it turns out that's exactly what Jesus means by that statement. He says, the two masters are going to come into conflict. You will choose one 
and he will disregard the other. Jesus similarly talks about this in Luke chapter 14 when he says, if anybody's going to follow me, they have to hate their father and mother and hate their wife and hate their children. And we read that and we're like, really? That doesn't seem quite right. He's not talking about personal animosity. He's talking about the fact that you can't serve two masters. You're going to have a situation where your family is going to want you to do one thing and Jesus is going to want you to do something else. And you're going to have to choose here and reject there. So when he says you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's not even talking about personal animosity. He's talking about the fact that we'd say, this is my in-group, this is who I'm with, I choose these people, I focus my attention, my my financial giving, my my prayers on these people because they are my in-group and everyone else is on their own. I disregard them. Now, just as a note, it's not just the Jews who live this way. This is reflecting an absolutely human instinct that we say there's a group of people that I owe something to because of my affiliation with them, and there's another group of people I owe nothing to. In fact, I was reading a book this last week by an economist named Thomas Sowell, and he was walking through how this whole idea of us clustering in groups is something that is just by de facto what human beings do. Um, In fact, in in our country, we often criticize the idea that certain organizations don't reflect the demographics, the overall demographics of our country, which is a legitimate question to raise and a legitimate thing to critique. But it's strange that we would treat that as the exception, that, that we would act as if, hey, the norm would just be that our organizations would reflect the demographics of the society around us. That has never been the way that human beings interact. Human beings cluster in groups. And in this book, Sol was talking about this, and specifically with immigrants. One of the examples he gave was during the 19th century with Italian immigrants, how, how when, they, uh, when they emigrated to different countries, not only would they often stay clustered in their own Italian communities, but they would often cluster up. Those from Genoa would only be with those from Genoa. Those from Naples would only be with those from Naples. Those from Sicily would only be with those from Sicily. They not only would would sort themselves out in Italian groups, but groups within those groups. When you think about that, you say, yeah, that's kind of what we do. And sometimes it's racial. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's political. There was that famous thing, this was before my time, and I, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I think it was when Richard Nixon had won election and there was a news anchor that said, um, I can't believe he won election. I don't know a single person who voted for him. And do you get it? She was saying, everybody around me thinks like me. Some of you thought this this last election one way or another. You said, I didn't know anybody was voting for him. I didn't know anybody that was voting for her. We cluster ourselves in groups. So when Jesus says, you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he's not talking about something extreme. He's saying, this is what we do. We say, this group is in because they're my family, because they're my race, because they look like me, because they have the same interests as me, because they they are in the same area as me. These are my people. Everyone else is on their own. And Jesus says, I've got something deeper for you. And so he says in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I was going to get into the why in a minute, but but let's just pause here for a minute. Just take in that Jesus is not only saying, it would have been enough if Jesus would have said, get beyond your in-group. 
Make sure that you reach out in love and that, and that you sense that you have a, a responsibility towards people of different ethnic groups, of people from different socioeconomic classes, of dif- people from different political affiliations, of people from different countries. Believe and start to move beyond that. But he doesn't just say that. He moves us to the outside extreme. Because he says, all right, there are going to be people who are your friends, who are your in-group, and then there's going to be people who are outside your in-group, and then within that group, there's going to be people on the far end who are your enemies. Because being outside the in-group doesn't mean they're your enemies, but there are going to be some people who are in opposition to you. I just want you to pause and think right now, because it's going to be different for different ones of us. Who are the people who would fit into your category of enemies? And it might be, I'll just make some suggestions, it might be individuals for some of us that you might say there's this person that I work with and they're just trying to block me at every turn, they're undercutting me, they're slandering me to the boss and my career is stalled because of them, they are an enemy. It might be somebody in your family or extended family that you say, man, they're just trying to keep me on the outside, they're slandering me to other family members, they're in opposition to me. So it might be an individual. Um, It might be a group. Some of you might think there's a group of people trying to ruin this country and they're the enemy and they need to be stopped. And now there's a whole class of people that you just view as your enemy, as your opposition. Jesus says, of course you love your neighbor. And of course you love your family. And you extend that beyond to people from other races and other groups that you wouldn't necessarily interact with because they're not your people in the same way. There's not the natural affinity. But then you go even further and you love and you pray for the people who are actively opposed to you. And by the way, one of the reasons why I think he includes prayer in this is because prayer is one of the most emptying activities we can do that is purely for the benefit of the other person and doesn't benefit us at all. When he says pray for, and by the way, he's not saying pray for them in the sense of like, God, get them. He's, he's talking about, he's making the assumption you're praying for their good. You're praying for their blessing. And it, and it might even involve a, a prayer about, um, about them coming to their senses and something. That, that's not out of bounds. If, or, or praying for repentance, if there's repentance needed. But the idea is you are praying for their good. You're looking at your enemy who instinctively you would root for their failure. And you're praying for their redemption. You're praying for their good. This gets me on. There's probably no story that Jesus told that most illustrates this than the story of the Good Samaritan. Because it begins with the man coming to Jesus and saying, what am I supposed to do to fulfill the law? And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all right, great. Who is my neighbor? And in that question, he was dealing with the exact thing that Jesus is combating here. He's saying, who is my in-group? Who am I obligated towards? And Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man getting injured and a priest and a Levite who many would say had an obligation to care for him passing on by. And a Samaritan who almost certainly would have experienced a lot of antagonism from the Jewish people chose to show him mercy. Jesus' point was that your neighbor is much broader than you think. Love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. And by the way, and this is just, this isn't something in the passage, but this is a reality in my life that I've experienced. Every time I've prayed for somebody that I've considered to be some kind of opponent, some kind of enemy, God has softened my heart towards them. 
and I've had a harder time seeing them as an enemy. So if you're looking at somebody in your life and saying, oh boy, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can pray for them. I don't know if I can treat them with kindness. I just want to say, take Jesus at his word, start praying for them. I believe most times God softens our hearts because we begin to see them with compassion rather than with antagonism. But Jesus also, he tells us why. He says, I'm going to tell you the reason to do it. It's not because it's required by law. It's not because it's the baseline. It's beyond the baseline. You love those, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He goes on and says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And by the way, tax collector was a bad deal in first century Israel. Tax collectors were Jews who had said, I can gain more money by siding with the Romans and price gouging my brothers, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Jesus says, even the tax collectors love their own. He goes on in verse 47 and says, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Don't even godless, idol-worshiping people do that? He ends the section in verse 48 by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which I, I understand sounds like an impossible task when Jesus is saying it. Some of you are like, great, no problem. I'll go be perfect. <laughs> that the idea of perfection, the core idea is, is, is not even the idea of being without sin. It's the idea of completion. It's the idea of being made complete. The idea is that Jesus is saying, your calling is not simply to be good to your family. If you're like, oh, I'm a godly person, I care for my family, I, I take care of the people God has placed in my immediate circle. Jesus' word is like, good, you're doing what everybody does. I mean, even Hitler loved his dog. Like you're not doing anything that impressive. But when you love those who are your enemies, you are revealing your father in heaven. You're showing them what God is like. In fact, throughout these passages, the the big thing that Jesus is pointing to is that love, and this kind of love that goes beyond our responsibilities, love displays the kingdom in a unique way because love uniquely displays God. The God of the universe, and just think about this for a second. When God was bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, when he was sending all the plagues on Egypt, God showed that he was absolutely capable of giving blessing and cursing and differentiating it. Darkness came on the Egyptians and it didn't come on the Jews. The the cattle all died with the Egyptians. They didn't die with the Jews. God is able to do that. So just pause and think about the most basic idea that Jesus talked about in this passage. Is God capable of making sure that people who are godly get sun and rain for their crops and evil people don't? That's not something that God can't pull off. He absolutely could pull it off. But Jesus says, God shows basic kindness. This is something that theologians call common grace. God shows basic kindness to people that nobody would say deserves it. He he sends them sun and they experience the benefits of the sun. He sends them rain so that they can get rain for their crops. And he gives them families and he gives them good gifts and provision and jobs. He, He cares for them in these basic ways. And just in case you're thinking, yeah, but, but, but those people are his enemies, so they only get these basics. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that God sent Jesus for us while we were still enemies. While we were God's enemies. You are like 
God if you go over and above because God not only sent us rain and sent us sun and gave us the blessings of families and and money and shelter, he gave us his son so that we could be brought into the family. I I heard a neat story on this from Bill Mulligan, who's one of our elders here and and was formerly a pastor at a different church. And he told the story that, that involved him and his wife, Susie. And the story was that Bill was working with an intern while he was a pastor, an intern named Scott. And Susie was at her place of work one day, and a man came into the store, and immediately she recognized him and thought, I think that must be Scott's dad. So she interacted with him and engaged him in conversation, and and sure enough, she said, now, my husband works with this this intern named Scott. Are you Scott's dad? He said, "I, I am Scott's dad. And they had this neat conversation with each other, and then he left, and Susie told Bill, and so Bill went up to Scott when he saw him later on and said, hey, um, Susie met your dad. In fact, she recognized him. She knew he was your dad. And he said, she knew he was my dad. How did she know he was my dad? And he said, well, you know, the mannerisms and the way that he talked and the way that he expressed himself, she could just tell. She could see the resemblance between you two. And he said, she could see the resemblance between us? He said, yeah. And Scott said, I'm adopted. Let that sink in for a minute. The resemblance was there, not because of inborn qualities. The resemblance was there because over the course of his life, Scott had picked up those things from his dad and adopted them as part of his life. People are going to recognize us as God's children, not because of something we were born with, but because of the way that we adopt the character of our father. We have a father who sent his only son to die for his enemies. And Jesus says, you reflect. You're perfect like your father in heaven. You reflect your father in heaven when you don't go through your life saying, what's owed me and what do I owe? And once I pay up and get paid up, I'll move on with my life but by saying, I'm not going to make demands on others and I'm going to give over and above what I have to give. This is what reflects our Father in heaven. When we pause to take this, and obviously this is a a big deal. Obviously this is something big. And so I, I want you to bow your heads and I want to just talk to you for a minute before I pray for us. And first of all, I want you just to think if there's any situation in which you are looking to collect because you believe that you're owed. And maybe it is a a very literal lawsuit that you've decided, I have a case, I have the right, I'm going for it. Maybe it's that you've decided you're not moving on until you collect an apology. Maybe it's that you're not going to move on until you've in some way inflicted something on somebody who's wronged you or make sure that their reputation reflects the wrong that they've done. Jesus calling for you is not to come to the conclusion that you are not owed, but to come to the conclusion that as a child of the king, you don't need to collect. And let me just also ask you to consider who are the people who are your enemies? Who are the people who it would be strangest for you to love and pray for? How will God put his gospel on display through you reaching out to the most unlikely people to receive your prayers, to receive your care, and to receive your mercy. Father, thank you so much 
that you've shown us your mercy when you had no obligation to do so. Thank you that you have loved us when you clearly owe us nothing. Thank you for sending Jesus for us to make us your children, to forgive our sin and to adopt us in. Father, we want to show the world you. We, we want to show the world the God of the universe. Lead us so that we have a family resemblance. Lead us so that we're not people constantly making demands, but so that we're people who are showing your great love and your great care to the world around us. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.